A very warm welcome to St Paul's Cathedral for this exciting Sunday Forum. My name is Paula Gooder and I'm Chancellor here at St Paul's. Um, I have just one health and safety notice which I'm informed I need to give you and that is in the case of fire, um, I am assured there hasn't been one here since a rather significant one in 1666. <laughs> Um, in the case of fire, please exit through the northwest crypt door, which is the entrance that you came in from. Um, now on to our event today. Peter Stanford clearly needs not very much introduction to you all because there are so many of you here. But Peter Stanford is a former editor of the Catholic Herald and he writes for the Daily and Sunday Telegraph as well as for the Observer and for the Tablet. His biography of Lord Longford was made into a BAFTA and Globe, um, Golden Globe winning film, Longford. He's a founding director of the Longford Trust for Prison Reform and a registered charity which offers a second chance to young people by supporting them to rebuild their lives through education after serving a prison sentence. He's presented various TV versions of his other books, which causes us to be excited, I feel, about this one. <laughs> you never know. Um, so his previous investigations into the history, theology, and cultural significance of religious ideas, including The Devil, a biography, <laughs> Heaven, a traveler's guide to the undiscovered country, Judas, the troubling history of the renegade apostle, and Martin Luther. Catholic dissident. But of course, you are here today to listen to him talk about his most recent book, Angels. And uh, we will listen to him talk for around 40 minutes. And then after he has spoken, we will have around 20 minutes um, for questions. So be thinking of your questions as he is talking. Um, just a little um, housekeeping thing for the questions is I am mic'd up and Peter is mic'd up, but you are not. So therefore, I need to repeat your questions before Peter answers them, because otherwise when they go on the video, it is most confusing indeed. Um, so just give me a moment to repeat the questions when you ask them. But before we get to questions, we need to have a talk. So please w w well, join me in welcoming Peter Stanford. Hello, very nice to be back here. Um, I was here two years ago talking about Luther and it was a very, it was such a nice experience. I, I'm almost tempted sometimes to look at it on the video, but then I see myself and realise I don't want to look at it. But it's very nice looking out and seeing a few, from, I've got my father-in-law sitting in the front row, very familiar face. So um, uh, very, very nice to be, did, we ha did I hear music before, just before I came in? Uh, I've done an event once before where I talked about angels where they played um, Robbie Williams. I'm, I'm, <laughs> Which isn't appropriate for the first Sunday of Advent, but there are lots of uh, there are lots of Advent carols that have angels in them. Of course, because of the uh, uh, because of the birth of Christ and the angels in in Bethlehem. Um, and I'm not going to sing any of them because I can't sing a note. Uh, but if anyone feels inspired at any stage, remember there isn't a microphone for you. Uh, you can you can um, sing uh, Advent carols for us. They might just come out on the video. Um, but anyway, listen. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, the, the question that, that comes up most often um, ab about this book um, when I was researching it and uh, writing it 
Uh, well, there were two questions. People said, why? Why are you writing about angels? And the second one is, um, uh, do you believe in angels? Um, so um, there's a song in that, actually, as well, isn't there? But anyway, I'm not going to sing that one either. The gentleman there nodding, I might pass the microphone to you. Um, so what, what I'm going to do, if it's OK with you, and obviously if you say no, we'll be completely flawed, uh, but if it is OK with you, is I'll talk about the why, and then that leads us logically through to the um, do, I, do, do I believe, um, in, in that sense. So the why, uh, why write a book about angels? Um, well, I kind of... I'm, I'm Catholic. I uh, grew up near Liverpool um, in a very uh, traditional uh, Catholic home in Liverpool. And uh, we went to bed every evening with the kind of prayer to our guardian angels, guardian angel, uh, um, uh, angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love... Um, it's marvellous when people nod a little bit about... Do you all know that one, to whom God's love commits me here? Ever this, thank you. Ever this night, be up my side. Okay, so we did that one. Um, my colleague, um, well, recently colleague, uh, has now moved at the Daily Telegraph, a woman called Liz Hunt, who grew up about 10 minutes down the road in Liverpool, also in a Catholic home, did a different one, which was uh, there are four angels at the four posts of my bed. Oh, you're all nodding for that one. That's interesting. I've been doing a poll, an unscientific poll, as to how many nods we get. Um, you're, you're, there's more of those ones. Where the angels are mixed up with the four evangelists in, in that one. Okay, so we did, we did the slightly odd one there. Anyway, we did that one. So kind of part of the kind of fabric of belief as, um, as I was growing up. Um, uh, pretty typical, I think, of, of Catholicism of the period. Um, the other thing, um, that, a very particular thing that I grew up with, uh, in terms of angels and guardian angels in particular, um, was my mum was disabled. Um, she, had, um, uh, she had multiple sclerosis, she was a wheelchair user. And those of you with long memories will know that in the early uh, 70s, at the beginning of, of the disability revolution, the government, in its wisdom, uh, decided it would give um, uh, disabled people uh, ca um, cars that they could drive in. And they were Invercars. Do you remember? They were sky blue, looked a bit like a Reliant Robin, but less stylish. Uh, they had those ones. So she had one of those. And, um, and what it involved, in order to drive it, you had to slide off your wheelchair, slide onto a seat. It was really... It was a, a terrible contraption in lots of ways. She used to hide me on the floor of it when I was little. We used to drive around it because you weren't to take passengers. Anyway, and she used to leave, but she couldn't be bothered bringing her wheelchair with her. So she would leave the wheelchair on the drive of our house and go into the local village. It wasn't a village, it was a suburb, but she called it a village. And um, people would uh, serve her through the window of the car. And um, my so my mum was from Liverpool, one of nine from near Scotland Road, and uh, my dad wasn't. And um, as my father-in-law can, uh, can, bear, can uh, bear witness to, my dad was a bit of a miserable old sod in lots of ways. Um, he, saw, he didn't see the world in the most optimistic way. So when she first started doing this, he said, one day you're going to come back and some scally will have stolen that wheelchair from the drive. And uh, my mum would just always say, I can hear her saying it now, she said, oh, Reg, don't be stupid, the guardian angels are watching it. And all I can tell you is that for 15 years, as she did that, most days, the wheelchair was always there. So we believed in guardian angels. It was that, it was that logical when you're young, isn't it? It's logical, it's very straightforward, that for you is evidence. Uh, Billy Connolly is another who believes that. He tells this story about um, growing up, I mean, he had a pretty unpleasant experience of Catholicism, but he talks about being taught about angels, and um, the one bit of Catholicism he says he's kept is that he always on his dashboard has what he calls a wee parking angel and he says when you drive around looking for a parking space oh, there's a man there who has one too when you drive around looking for a parking space he doesn't know about the rest of all that religious nonsense uh, but certainly he always finds a parking space when he's looking for one so there we are there's angel, angels and cars there's, 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 a, there's a, a, a theme 
Um, obviously, we grow older, as you can see, um, and, um, and we have to think more maturely about what we, what we think about. And some of the books that Paula was listing there, the books that I've written before, in many ways are things that are kind of taking up some of those ideas that I grew up with and trying to work out what I think about them or, 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 or how they work in, in a kind of... Um, in a, in, a, in a kind of adult age in a way. So The Devil, which is very nice that Lady gasped there that I'd written a book about The Devil. Um, the Devil, I went to a Christian brother's school, so I'm afraid that was all they talked about all the time. <laughs> not a lot about God, not a lot about heaven and reward, but an awful lot about where we were going to go if we got it wrong. Um, and um, and, I, and I, the book about heaven was really, a, sorry, not to be mother-obsessed, but when my mother died in 1998, I, um, you just thought, oh, and what does that mean? I mean, I was, I was going to say I was young then. I was 37, it seems young from where I am now. And, um, and I just thought, what does that mean? So I looked at those ideas about how we have, how we've given form to the idea uh, or hankering for afterlife. And so the, the book about angels fits in very much with that. And there was one very particular spur to me writing it. Um, I, I write features for The Telegraph, and the aforementioned Liz Hunt uh, sent me off uh, a few years ago to interview a woman called Lorna Byrne, who some of you will know about. Um, and she published a book called Angels in My Hair, which was all about her, uh, how she had been able um, all her life to see, our, see guardian angels, to see her own guardian angel and to see other people's guardian angels. And so she published this book and it was the publisher's great delight, a word of mouth bestseller. So sold enormously all around the world. Uh, she draws very large crowds. And um, so I, I went and interviewed her. Um, she's utterly sincere in what she describes. Uh, she's utterly sane in the way she describes it. And so I wrote a piece. I mean, you don't find those pieces very often in newspapers anymore, do you? Uh, where people of faith are sort of treated as if they're bonkers. Uh, but but, um, but I, wrote, uh, I wrote as I found. And, uh, and uh, very soon afterwards, she was doing this big event in London in Quaker House, um, Friends House, that very big 800-seat thing there. And they asked me if I'd go and interview on stage. So I did that. Again, same conversation. It was completely full, and the thing that is the spur to me writing the book, really, was of the, the 800 people who were there that evening, um, every single one of them, or almost all of them, stayed afterwards. I don't want you to feel any pressure, obviously, but every single one of them stayed afterwards and queued up patiently for what took about an hour and a half, two hours, to meet her. And I was talking to the people in the queue and saying, why do you want to meet her so badly? What, what, what is that? And, and, and with my own sort of rather craven nature, I said, do you want to know what your guardian angel looks like? Because, of course, I'd asked her that, and she said she wasn't able to tell me. But it was as if she was looking at my guardian angel through water, uh, which made me very nervous of swimming ever afterwards. I thought that was a kind of foretaste or something. But it wasn't that. And, I, and what they all said, almost to a, to, to a kind of man and woman, was nobody talks about these things anymore. No one talks about angels. Um, it's something that we feel that to us is very real. And so we, we just want to meet Lorna. We want to connect with someone who, 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 who experiences the world in the same way that we experience it. So that set me thinking. Um, and I said, the, the, one of the great things about the internet age is that there can only be a thousand people in the country who believe they have experiences or, or relationships with angels, and the internet can bring them all together in one hall. So I thought, have I met everybody who thinks that in that hall that evening, or is it more <laughs> widespread? And um, so I started looking at these surveys that are done all the time of people's religious uh, beliefs and faith beliefs and whatever and came across quite a big one. I think they'd done, I think it's 2,000, it might be more people. They'd asked them about, about belief, and they started off by asking them, would they describe themselves as very or fairly religious? 
and 23% of them, 3% said very and 20% um, said fairly. So 23% of people said they were very religious. And then they asked them about angels. And one in three of them, so 33%, said they believed they had a guardian angel. And one in 10 of them, so 10%, said they had experienced the presence of an angel at some stage in their life. So one in three, for those of you who aren't good at maths, and I'm not, so it took me a while, I spent two years researching the book, it gave me time to do this sum. Uh, one in three is more than 23%, isn't it? So of course, angels, the word angel means messenger. Uh, in Hebrew and in Greek, it means messenger. The messengers of the gods had become the message for some of those people, at least, 10% of them. Uh, by that sense, they didn't. They weren't very religious, but they believed in angels. So that was fascinating. And the most fascinating thing in the um, survey of all was that 7% um, of people um, who said they were atheists said they believed in angels. <laughs> um, so I thought there's something to look at. So um, the way that I went about looking at it was um, was to look back. I think history teaches us a great deal. One of the things that I, I lots of things I hate about the modern age, are lots of things that are brilliant about the modern age as well. And actually, we should never use the word hate. It's a word we should expunge from our vocabulary. I dislike. Um, is that when people use the word medieval sometimes, they describe it as if it's a bad thing. Oh, that's so medieval. As if medieval people were just stupid. And we are so much cleverer now. And I think the past has a great deal to teach us. So I looked at um, what people had thought about angels in the past. Um, and I suppose the earliest references that you come across to angels are in kind of Vedic texts, which were written in what we would now call India, the Indian subcontinent, that area, um, uh, 2500, 2500 BC, so um, a long time ago. Um, and the ideas that were coming out then, you would find winged messengers of the gods, winged assistants to the gods, and, and, some, and they have a very, very broad pantheon and kind of winged gods. So they're, they're never called angels, the word isn't used, but, but, but those recognisable figures to our idea of angels, uh, you, you can see them in those writings. And then if you fast forward a little bit, not particularly further forward or, or around the same time, you, um, you come across the Egyptian ideas, uh, again, of kind of gods, of... Um, you know the idea of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the image of the Ark of the Covenant in the first Jewish temple? Um, it was, the, it was the, the, the container that had the scrolls that Moses had brought down from the mountain. Uh, it was the holiest of holiest. It was there. And God's presence was meant to be sort of on the lid, on the top, the, um, the mercy seat, as they called it. Uh, that was where God was meant to be. There's that wonderful Nick Cave song about that, the mercy seat, if you know it. Anyway, listen to it. It's about the, it puts that together with the electric chair. But anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. And, this, and at either end, they had, um, they had two cherubim. Uh, two winged creatures and obviously the Ark of the Covenant is lost all of that is lost but we know from people's descriptions of it it's there in the Old Testament where did they get that idea from they got it from Egypt if you go into that amazing new museum they've got in, in Cairo of kind of ancient Egyptian art you've got virtually the mercy seat there with the two cherubim on either side ideas are borrowed one from the other and that I, that is very important in lots of the ideas that have come down through Christianity particularly important in angels so there's those two early ideas the really key period though the one the one that I, I I think really gives us the clue to where our ideas come from um, is, um, is the, the, the Zoroastrian period. Um, so Zoroaster, for those who don't, don't know him, was a prophet. You can think of this as a map indeed. India, 
Zoroastrianism, Europe, over here. So in Iran, Iraq, Zoroastrianism, 1500 BC, Zoroaster, the, the, the prophet. Um, Zoroastrianism was a, a dualist religion, uh, it made, uh, incredibly widespread at that period, and, and continued to be very widespread till the 7th century AD, uh, when um, Islam comes and, and uh, displaces it. Uh, still exists, there's a Zoroastrian temple in London, uh, still exists in India, uh, the Parsi people, they're Zoroastrians. And it was a, a dualist religion, believed in a good God and a bad God, in, in eternal uh, battle on earth. And you find angels throughout Zoroastrian belief. So you find them, um, you find them first of all, in, in the, um, uh, the, 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 um, the Gathas, which is the, the, the sort of the Bible of Zoroastrianism in a sense. They talk about angels on the parapets of heaven, watching down and swooping down to earth to rescue people. Guardian angels, there's your guardian angel, there it is. Uh, 1500 BC, they're talking about that. Um, they also talked about, um, uh, Fravashi, who were, were, um, were angel-like spirits who were, who were around, they talked about the good god is called Ahura Mazda um, in that, and Ahura Mazda was one of a set of seven, and the other six creatures were, were winged creatures who were called divine spirits, kind of a bit like archangels, who supported them, and they all, they all took responsibility for bits of creation, which again is an idea you get coming through into Judaism and Christianity. And the other bit of, you might, might be more familiar with this bit of Zoroastrianism. Um, has anyone seen, anyone driven past the Angel of the North on, on the A1 if you're going there? Okay, so incredibly, I'm going to undo my jacket while I do that because otherwise I'll look a bit odd. Incredibly wide wings and a sort of animal head um, uh, is, is the Faravar, is the, uh, the, uh, um, the uh, Zoroastrian kind of winged god. It was, it's still on all public buildings in Iran now because in the 19th century they picked it up again and turned it into a nationalist symbol. So it's very, very, it's where, it's where Anthony Gormley gets the idea of that, that extended uh, wing thing. Um, he uses a man's head. Uh, the Faravar has a kind of animal head. It has a very, very large nose. And I'm going to turn sideways now so you can get the idea of it, because uh, I've got one too. Um, but, um, but that symbol, which we're, we're all very familiar with. So absolutely key to Zoroastrianism. So that connection of how do those things connect together. Um, 597, Nebuchadnezzar. Very important never to have a drink before you say Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the, uh, the Babylonian king uh, defeats the Jews. Defeats the Jews, uh, conquers Jerusalem destroys the first temple, the first temple in Jerusalem. That, that's when the Ark of the Covenant went. Don't believe Indiana Jones. That's when the Ark of the Covenant went. Those two cherubs over the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, he defeats them and takes the Jews off into exile in Babylon, uh, where they are in exile until 523 uh, BCE or BC. Um, we should say BC, we're in the Christian uh, cathedral, aren't we? Um, uh, so they go off there and uh, all sorts of kind of consequences. That. The Jews had believed themselves to be God's chosen people. And suddenly they questioned that. What had they done wrong? They felt suddenly that God was very distant. Um, second consequence is they're exposed to all those uh, Zoroastrian beliefs, around, particularly around angels, massive presence of angels in there. And the third thing is, as well as the Ark of the Covenant being destroyed and the temple being destroyed, Historians are a bit divided on this. Some of them say that the early books that we now call the, the early books of the Old Testament never existed in written form. Um, and others say they did exist in written form, but they were destroyed. But certainly what happens when the Jews are in exile in Babylon is they start going through a whole exercise of writing down those, those texts again, keeping those texts in written versions. That is what is going on there. 
And we, you know, it's hard to know whether the angels that we see in the early books of the Old Testament were always in those stories or whether they were inserted. Again, end a scholarly debate around that. Uh, and it's very hard at this distance to find an exact answer to that. Um, but what we can be more exact about is that the books that follow the Babylonian exile, the Jewish books towards the end of the Old Testament, um, were deeply influenced by that and, and show a whole change of mindset by the Jews. So the Jews believed that they had distanced themselves from God and that Yahweh didn't really want to kind of hear their pleas anymore. And of course, even when they get back in 523 BC, they have a series, uh, they have carry on being defeated all the time. So the, um, the Alexander the Great successes his empire. Um, I never know how to say the word Seleucid, I think is how you say it. It's often when you write a word down in a book and you keep writing it all the time and you don't quite know how to pronounce it. So um, no one's looking horrified, so hopefully I didn't get that wrong. Um, so they then march in and they defeat the Jews again and they start introducing Greek worship into the, into the, um, into the, uh, the second temple that's been rebuilt there. So they have the, the, the worship of Zeus there and lots of Jews find that very difficult, time of great strife. They finally get rid of them you have the Maccabee revolt at the beginning of the second century, or the end of the second century BC. And what, what then happens is the Romans then come and defeat them again. So constant defeats, constant sense that God isn't protecting them, that they've lost the covenant, and they try and find ways to reach God, to reach Yahweh. And so angels become not messengers, but intermediaries. They are the way that the Jews think they will get back to God and get back in God's favor. And what you see develop, and it's there at the end of the Old Testament, is a, is a literature of apocalypse that there will be a last day where um, God and his angels will come down, will smite all their enemies and, and establish a kingdom of heaven on earth. And that is full of angels. I mean, we know it from the book of Apocalypse, book of Revelation, Archangel Michael is there. But where did those names first come from, those names of angels? They come from the book of Daniel, which is in all, um, uh, all, all varieties of Christianity's versions of the Bible. Uh, book of Daniel, three books, very, very important. Daniel, Tobit, and Enoch. So well, let's do Daniel first, because it's one we, we all share. And what happens in the book of Daniel, you, it's an apocalyptic book, it's an apocalyptic vision of the Jews being rescued uh, by God from on high. Who do, you, who do we meet? We meet the archangel Michael, who comes down with, with his sword, who's a kind of military sort of defeating, avenging figure. Uh, he then enters, enters the sort of the, the discussion. And we also, and it's also, um, what you also get in that book is the idea of judgment in death somehow, because uh, the, the Jews up to that point had believed in Shoal, a kind of place where everyone went. They didn't believe in judgment and death. Um, but, but in the book of Daniel, you get this idea of judgment and death. The book of Daniel, like lots of those books, was written at the end of the second century BC, around the time of the Maccabee revolt, uh, but, but predates itself, puts itself back into the Babylonian exile. So it's written afterwards, but it's reflecting on the events. So you get Daniel, and you also get Gabriel. So where Daniel... Uh, you get Michael and you also get Gabriel. So where uh, Michael is kind of tough and military, Gabriel is very, very kind of caring and lovely and has all the soft skills that you might want. But they're both named in there. In, 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 well, in, in Christianity, they try to, they've always tried to stick to three named angels, Michael, Gabriel and Raphael. There are lots of other ones who kind of creep in and out. Uh, there's Uriel in particular, who's a bit like the fifth beetle. Sometimes he's allowed in, sometimes he's not allowed in. Uh, but Michael, Gabriel and Daniel. So you've got, there's your Michael, there's your Gabriel. Where do you get Raphael? You get Raphael in the book of Tobit. 
Um, now, I always get slightly confused with the book of Tobit. It's absolutely there in Catholic versions of the Bible. Um, I, I was told it wasn't, it's not in the King James Bible, but it's in some Anglican uh, Bibles now. Um, and I'm going to look to the Chancellor for, for guidance on that. It's in the Apocrypha, okay? Um, so, do you all know, does anyone, do you, all of you know the book, the story of the book of Tobit? A few of you. It's a great story. I'm just going to tell you because it's Sunday. Let's have a very quick story. Um, it's a great story. So what happens in the book of Tobit is you have Tobit and you have his wife, um, Anna, and they have a son called Tobias. And they're having, it's, it's written around the time of the, if you, if you go into the National Gallery, the Verrocchio painting of Tobias and his dog and the angel are there. Anyway, just, just think of that next time when you go in there because you will have heard the story here. So you heard it here. Uh, so what, um, what happens is that they're, they're living at the time of, of the, the Greek influence trying to change Judaism and they stick to the old ways and they're ostracised. They're having a fairly difficult time because they, they won't go with the swing, as it were, of how things are changing. And uh, as in the midst of this terrible time, um, poor old Tobit goes out into the garden to look at his plants or something, and a bird flies overhead. And I can't think, I'm in a cathedral, I can't think of a polite way of saying this, but basically the bird plonks into his eyes, and he's blinded by the bird droppings. So things get worse, and at the same time they get a letter from their niece Sarah, um, who lives some distance away, and she's having an even worse time. She's been married seven times, and each night on her, on, on, uh, her wedding night, we'll go no further, we're in the cathedral, um, it, nothing, it doesn't work because a demon comes down and kills her bridegroom. So what do they decide to do? They decide to send uh, their son, their teenage son, Tobias, to go and make sure Sarah's all right and help her. And he's going to take his faithful dog with him. But he says, as we all have to our father at some stage, you know, I'm a bit nervous of making this journey. And his father says, as you do, why don't you pop down to the market and get yourself a slave to accompany you when you go down there? <laughs> so he pops down to the market and gets himself a slave. What we know, but he doesn't know, is the slave is the archangel Raphael. So off they set on the journey, off they go, go, go. Halfway there they get a bit hungry, he teaches him how to um, fish. So if you're ever a fisherman and you're short of a fish, think of the Archangel Raphael. You have a quick fish, they catch a fish, and then he shows him, if you're bad at cooking, here's another top tip, he shows him, the angel shows him how to cut up the fish so you have the heart, the lungs and the gall, and then they eat the other bit, whatever the other bit is. Um, and then they go along to see Sarah, who's having a terrible time. They use the heart and the lungs to uh, drive away the demons. So Sarah is newly freed, and hey presto, what happens? Uh, she falls in love with Tobias, and they decide to get married. Um, I'm slightly worried about the age gap, but we're not going to, we're not going to go there. <laughs> but they decide anyway, they're going to go back and tell mum and dad, just in case mum and dad don't approve. So they head back the other way, they're heading back, and they get home to tell them the joyous news. Poor old Tobit's still blind. So they take the, 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 the person they all think is a slave, takes the gall, rubs it in his eyes, and Tobias can see. So, and then at that stage, um, Raphael announces himself as the angel. He is their guardian. He's their guardian who's come down. There it is. It's in the Book of Tobit. And if you found my telling of it a bit short and boring, uh, read Sally Vickers's book, Miss Garnet's Angel, because that's what it's all about. It's that story. So there those ideas are in Judaism. The third important book, there's only one church that has it in its ca uh, canon anymore. It's the Book of Enoch, and it's the Ethiopian Orthodox people. Uh, they, they have it as a canonical text. Um, the Book of Enoch is unreadable. There's no, there's no two ways about it. There are, there are there are, there are Enoch 2 and Enoch 3 as well, which come later, but Enoch 1 is the key one. 
So Tobiah, the book of Tobit was also written at the end of the second century BC when the Jews are having all these problems, uh, turning to angels. Enoch was written in stages between about the third century BC and the first century AD. Really, really, really important written and that spreads that over that period when Christianity begins. And, and what does it do? It takes the biblical patriarch Enoch, who disappointingly for everyone else in the book of Genesis only lived for 365 years, as opposed to 900 and whatever it was Methuselah lived, and it is said he went, he went to God. So they decided that he had gone to heaven. So what the book of Enoch is, it's, about, it's an account of what heaven looks like. And so Enoch goes there and he sees all the kind of lovely bits of heaven and all of those bits, sees endless, endless angels. They're just everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And they've all got named, so many names of angels in the book of Enoch. And then a bit later on, so he goes over six sort of bits of heaven. And in the seventh bit, there's a bit of a kind of shade over. And he says, what's going on there? What's the problem there? And they say, oh, that's where the fallen angels live. And so that is where we get the idea of the devil and, and demons. That then bleeds into Christianity. Enoch doesn't talk about a devil, but it's Christianity who take that idea along with the idea of judgment and death, which they get from Daniel, and they, 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 they bring it to those kind of bad angels. So good angels, bad angels, demons, angels. That's where it comes from, the book of Enoch. All comes through there. It all comes from Judaism. So from uh, for the Vedic, the Hindu texts, through uh, Zoroastrianism into Judaism, and then forward into Christianity. So what do you know, when we look at early Christianity, there are angels aplenty in the Gospels, there are angels in the, in the letters of St. Paul. St. Paul isn't very keen on angels. I think it's in uh, Corinthians that he, he uh, chastises people for, the word he uses is groveling, groveling before angels. And you think, what's that about? And obviously what it's partly about is St. Paul felt that what he was preaching was, in, was not just a sort of a reform bit of Judaism, but a new church, uh, Christianity. So um, unfortunately, as people do when they form new things, they denigrate the things they've moved forward from. So he was denigrating Judaism. And unfortunately, in Christianity, we've got quite a long history of that. But anyway, that's, that's for another day. Um, so that, that's partly why he talks about groveling. Um, but he's also, what he believes very, very passionately in a much more positive way, is that Jesus is the new covenant. Jesus is the way for us to... to, to, to uh, uh, to kind of to get to God in that sense or to, 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 to get God's protection you don't need these angels anymore so he's rejecting that Jewish idea so that that is there in Paul so that in a way is the theology of it one of the interesting things about the story of angels going forward from there is there are almost like two streams running there's the official theological kind of discussion about angels and there's an awful lot of it it's what we called angelology in medieval universities um, and then there's the kind of popular bit of it as well so I'll I just intersperse some of those quickly in explaining it and I'll look at the clock quickly as well um, interspersing it um, it's amazingly large figures on this clock which is wonderful so I don't I can be vain and not put my glasses on but um, uh, so um, what you get in the early church, if you particularly think about the catacombs, and the, uh, which is where we find the earliest depiction in Christianity of an angel, the angel Gabriel is down in uh, one of the catacombs. Uh, from I think the first, uh, second century AD is, what, is when it's been dated to. So the early Christians, they didn't all live down there, which is what the Christian brothers told us. Uh, there's lots of things they told us that weren't true, but they told us that as well. But they would celebrate their masses down there. And actually they took great, a great sucker from the idea that they had angels who guarded them, and they took great sucker from the idea that, um, uh, particularly that story in the Acts of the Apostles about St. Peter uh, being rescued from prison by an angel. 
So in a way, they felt themselves imprisoned and fighting for the faith. And there was the story of the angel coming and releasing St. Peter. They, they, felt, they felt that very, very powerfully. So in a very practical way, that, 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 that idea of a guardian angel empowered them. It, it, it worked very well for them. Um, uh, the first, uh, the, the first the, that the angel Gabriel, interestingly, has no wings. Um, the first depiction we have of a, a, an angel with wings in Christianity is in that very beautiful Roman basilica, which we in English give the very ugly name of St. Mary Major to uh, Santa Maria Maggiore, sounds much better, um, uh, and, and, and at their, um, their, their kind of uh, nativity scene. You get the angels that all our children and grandchildren uh, are, have, have been in, in place. They're wearing white robes like a Roman toga, they have golden wings, and they have, they have halos. That's where, that's where the image comes from in early Christianity. Very, very linked with the Nativity and the Annunciation, as angels have been all the way through. So here we are in Advent. Very, very appropriate to be talking about them. Um, so th that, that's, the, that's the popular strand. The theological strand around the same time, you get people like St. Augustine, who starts wondering what angels, what exactly the role of angels is and what they're made of. And um, in particular, one question that um, that troubled those early church fathers, the early church theologians, is what was the role of angels in creation? Because they would go back to the beginning of Genesis and there's no mention of angels there. More to the point, you have the creation of, of Adam and Eve at the end of it. So what is the relationship between human beings and angels if angels aren't mentioned in the creation story? So St. Augustine, who was canny at all of these things, he decided that the way round that was to find the angels in the earlier bits of the creation story. And he said, of course, angels are mentioned there. When God says, let there be light, he means angels. That's what he's talking about. So angels are light. They are light. They are spirit. He was very, very keen on that idea. And that they didn't particularly take form, a, a, a physical form, which, of course, in the popular line, isn't what people feel. They feel like the one in three... Who, who have experienced the presence, or even the one in, the one in ten who've experienced the presence, the one in three who uh, feel they have a guardian angel, that, that, that they do have form. No, for, no form, he said. Um, the other thing, um, particularly Catholic Christianity, but all, for, well, certainly Anglican Christianity as well, uh, is very, very keen on his hierarchies. Uh, we, you know, we need to know our place. And obviously, as, you know, as lay people, we're all relatively low down. And um, as women, certainly in my church, uh, right down at the very bottom, which is terrible. But anyway, uh, one day that will get sorted. Um, and um, so what, what um, a, a writer in the 5th century called Pseudo-Dionysus, really bizarre name. The reason he's called Pseudo-Dionysus is theological writers at that time, he was Greek. Um, they didn't use their own name. They claimed authority by picking on a, an obscure character in the New Testament. And there's a, a judge called Dionysus, who I think is mentioned in the... Um, Acts of the Apostles, and they, they, they sort of say they're speaking for, so pseudo-Dionysus. Anyway, so don't worry about the name, but if you have grandchildren, don't think about uh, christening them pseudo-Dionysus, because it would be a burden to carry around in life. Um, <laughs> so he writes about an angelic... He starts organising the, the angels, because he looks back in the Old Testament, and we've got cherubim, we've got seraphim, we've got archangels, we've got angels. What order are they all in? And very interestingly, he says angels are, are based in, um, in heaven uh, at, at the very top, and the ones who are there are the cherubim and the seraphim. And the great bonus they have is they can see the face of God. 
That comes from that moment in Genesis where Jacob wrestles with the angel at the ford on the river Jabbok. And what happens at the end, after all the wrestling, he sees God's face. And of course, that's one of the great Christians, you know, Christian yearnings, to see God's face. So the theology was that we can't, but angels can, because the seraphim and the cherubim, cherubim are up in heaven in the top of those, of those circles. And the circles go down a ladder, and at the very, very bottom are the angels and archangels, because they're with us. So Angel's main role is up there, but the really, really key thing in that idea is the link between it all. But the church used that to, to re-emphasise hierarchy all the time, re-emphasise our lowliness, and, and, and up you go through a hierarchy, which I think some of us have got a little bit tired of now. But, um, but certainly they're, they're, they're very keen on that. So again, being used theologically. And then you move on, you move on to the rise of the cult of the Virgin Mary, um, around the 9th, 10th century, 11th century, where the idea was that Mary was going to become, and obviously it didn't happen at the beginning, just as, as I'm sure you all know, if you read about Mary in the New Testament, there's more in the Quran about Mary than there is about Mary in the Christian New Testament. But the, the rise of this cult around Mary in Christianity, um, and what, what you get it, uh, accompanying that is the idea there are always angels around her, she's queen of angels, and that somehow they, they work side by side as, um, as intercessors, as so a lot of this idea now around angels uh, being your intercessors with God, going back slightly to the kind of Jewish ideas. Um, and so, you know, towns and cities and countries take on the Archangel Michael as their protector, Angel Raphael um, uh, as, um, as the person who cures things, because what he did with the, with the fish and all of that, and, um, and Gabriel in, in those kind of soft emotional skills. So the, the kind of, the, the entry of angels into our, la into our lives Another aspect of that kind of Christian idea, and it sort of works at both levels, really. You will all have heard the phrase about angels dancing on pinheads that people use for unnecessary detail. It's usually ascribed to St. Thomas Aquinas, probably one of the, certainly one of the greatest theologians in uh, uh, Christianity, 13th, 14th century. Um, he, um, he never said it. He never said it. It was, it was ascribed to him much later on uh, by someone who was trying to kind of do down Catholicism. But he certainly wrote around those ideas. But I think the really, he, and he did a lot of, to us, uh, sort of very, very detailed observation of what angels could and couldn't do. This was the great academic discipline of medieval Europe. In the great universities, Oxford, uh, uh, Paris, Bologna, the great discipline was angelology. The great school was theology, and within theology you specialised in angelology because you were looking at angels. And they looked at things like, did angels have bodies? No, says Thomas Aquinas. If we can see them, it's like compressed air, which makes them sound a bit like Mr Blobby. But anyway, that's what he decided <laughs> on the basis of all his speculations. Did they eat? No, they didn't eat. They couldn't eat food because they didn't have bodies. Did they have relationships? No, they didn't have relationships because they could see God. All of those things. Went through all of those dancing on, on, the, on the head of a, a pinhead kind of idea. He went through those. But his real concern, his real concern, and this is in defence of Thomas Aquinas, was to understand the workings of the world at the time. This is religion and science. You know, how do the planets move? How do the tides rise? Why does the sun come up and down? How does that all work with God's creation? And he felt that angels held the key to that. That if you could understand angels, you could understand how God interacted with the, with the natural world, with science in that sense. And it wasn't an isolated idea. You see it continually through history going forward. You see it in the great Elizabethan, John Dee, who, was, who tried to unite science. You see it in Swedenborg in the, in the 18th century, who writes a lot about it. You see it in Blake. You see it in Milton. This idea that angels somehow hold the key to understanding the world. Obviously, we, we've, we've got another key now. 
um, as the song goes. But, um, but um, good, who I forgot that reference. But um, oh, I'm not going to sing that one either. Um, but, but that was a very serious uh, uh, endeavour at that time. So another aspect of Christianity, taking angels to its own as the key to And it's a bit like an anthropologist nowadays trying to understand humanity by looking at orangutans. That's what they were doing. They were looking at angels. They thought they were that central. Fast forward, I'm, going to, I'm just going to fast forward very, very quickly now. Fast forward to the Renaissance where, um, uh, where angels became very human in those. They were like us. They felt our pain. Famous Renaissance. I don't know if any of you have been to the Arena Chapel in Padua. Uh, the Giotto paintings there. They're just amazing. Go to them. They are... They're the best, he says rather crudely, but they are. Um, a whole series of Christ's life. Um, and what Giotto has there, the, the very famous one, is the Lamentation, where Mary is cradling um, Jesus' dead body when he's been taken off the cross. The apostles are all around weeping, and the angels are above them. And what are the angels doing? They've all got exactly the same expression on their face as the human beings below. They feel our pain. They're very, very close to us. This was the time when you didn't just decorate churches with angels, you decorated, if you were rich, you decorated your palaces as part of the Renaissance. Uh, Frangelico, Giotto, you, you decorated the ceilings of your palazzos, you decorated your convents with angels. They were as close to human as can be. That was, that was the idea then. I'm going to give you one very fi final quick uh, example of, of, of how that links angels with humankind. The Renaissance was all about um, realising human potential, individual potential, not collective potential. So that link was there, and the link was there again, um, in the, moving forward very quickly to the 20th century, the Angel of Mons. First World War, Mons, the first great battle of the First World War, and it was presented in the British press as a victory, and the victory was simply to hold the Germans up for five days. Um, but it was presented as a victory, so they got a very well-known writer of the time called Arthur Macken to write about the, um, the battle, and he talked about borrowing the imagery from Agincourt, the great British victory over the French in the 14th century, 14th, isn't it, um, of the, the bowmen from heaven coming down. So he talked about angels coming down to support the British troops in that, and the angels of Mons. And this idea spread like wildfire. Macken afterwards actually said, I made that up, it wasn't true. Um, but people believed it. The really, really important, the really important thing about angels is to ask why people believe it. Why did people believe it then? Because... The scale of suffering in the First World War, I mean, chaplains at the time write back and say, you know, I have no answer to give to the scale of suffering that's going on here. And that, in a sense, brings me round to the do I believe in and why do we believe in angels? Times of stress and strain and crisis, angels are always there. It's there in our holy books. So Virgin Mary is pregnant. Who turns up in her time of stress and strain? Archangel Gabriel. Um, Islam, beginning of Islam, who, who, when Muhammad is fretting in a cave in 610 AD on, on Mount Hera, thinking the world's in a terrible mess, who turns up? An angel, Angel Jabril, same angel, Angel Gabriel in Arabic. Um, Peter's locked in prison, who turns up? An angel. Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament are sitting there in the middle of the desert thinking, I really want a baby, I know I'm 89, but I still want a baby. <laughs> who turns up? Three angels. Trying to bring down the walls of Jericho, can't do it. Who turns up? The angel of the Lord. Angels at times of stress and strain. And I really, I, don't, I, mean, I really don't need to labour the point for us here, but you know, we're hardly living in the best of times, are we? Uh, you know, politics, climate change, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump. Um, and I think more generally than just the specific things, I think people feel very insecure at the moment. That's part of why one in three, one in ten, those figures I've given you, that's part of the answer. Second part of that answer, I think, is that in the past people would have turned to organised religion. 
they would have felt that was where you went in times of trouble. People don't do it for a whole series of reasons that we can go into at great length, but probably not now. Uh, we, we've turned away from those things. Uh, but people like, they pick and choose the bits that they want, and they like the angel bit. Why do they like the angel bit? I think because angels are very finely tuned to our emotional needs. Angels come with no baggage. Um, you know, to be a Catholic, I was told by my Christian brothers, I had to go to Mass every Sunday, had to wait till I got married, had to have lots of children, and I must never look at someone of the same sex with approval. Um, in that sense, all of those, and, and keep women in their place. I was told to do all of those things, and that, in a sense, was the, that, that was the cost for joining. Angels make no demand. What does, it, what does a guardian angel give you? Unconditional love. We don't get much unconditional love in the world anymore, do we? It's easy to understand. People don't want rules and regulations. We live in a very individualistic age. We don't live in a collective age. And angels are pretty finely tuned to that as well. Part of all that as well is, I think, this left brain, right brain thing. Some of you might have read Ian McGilchrist's book, uh, The Master and His Emissaries. Amazing book, British uh, psychiatrist. We have a left brain, we have a right brain. Scans of the brain show. And the left brain is much more um, intuitive with metaphor and poetry and imagery trying to kind of reach, reach things that the right brain, which is all about fact and information. We live in a scientific age, since the scientific revolution, we live in this age where we're told we can't believe anything that, isn't, um, that is, can't be shown up under a test tube, that can't be proved to be fact. So heaven doesn't exist because we've looked in our telescopes and it's not there. People have bigger yearnings than that. And what I don't mean to do is damn science. Science has done lots of wonderful things. Um, I wrote a book about the devil, as you mentioned before. In the medieval period, uh, people believed that if you were epileptic, you were possessed by the devil. You know, thank God science has, has, has shown us not to do that. Um, but what science cannot, uh, cannot explain is suffering. It can't explain why good young people, uh, like that man yesterday who I knew, Jack, um, was killed when he was trying to do good um, with a really good organisation by one of the people he was trying to help. Think about that, actually. Just think about when you keep hearing terrorism said all the time. If you're a terrorist, you kill the general public. When you're mentally ill, you kill the people who are trying to help you. So every time they keep saying terror, 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 think mental illness, mental illness. But anyway, why do good people like him, um, sorry, why do good people like him die? We don't know the answer to that. We haven't got answers to that. And I think that feeds into a broader yearning that people have um, around someone to watch over me as the song goes. We have a yearning for that. We have a yearning for there to be something more. And I think in all of our lives, there are moments which we might call, we can call them whatever we like, but we might call them moments of transcendence when we have a sense that there is more to the world than meets the eye, that there is this other narrative going on, that there is this parallel world, that things are moving which aren't entirely within our human powers, our scientific knowledge or whatever. Things are happening. Angels are part of that. I began at the beginning by saying, do I believe in angels? I believed in them. I have not experienced the presence of an angel. I believe I have a guardian angel. But what I will say, just as a final thought on a moment of transcendence, I've talked, I've talked a lot about my mum already, um, uh, but after she died, um, churches often have very squeaky floors. So when we used to go into church as kids, um, and she would wheel her wheelchair, uh, they never adapted the benches, so she always had to sit sticking out into the aisle. They've got better at some things. Um, uh, but her wheels always made a noise on that. I, when I go to church now with my uh, wife and children, well, certainly when they were little, they won't come anymore, uh, when we used to go, um, 
there were moments, very, very rare moments, very, very rare moments, where if I was sitting there, I could hear the, um, the wheels of her wheelchair. And I knew, and I'm sorry, you're going to think I'm mad, um, but and I don't care. Um, I knew that at the end of the bench, she was there. And I knew she was there. I also knew if I looked, she w I, that she would go. So I didn't look, but I felt her presence. So I believe in transcendence. I believe in angels. There you go. Am I sitting here? Is that right now? I'm staying here on open. <laughs> Thank you so much. The applause tells you how much everyone has enjoyed Thank that. you. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Thank you. You say you haven't had an experience of angel. I just need to confess, I have. Oh, excellent. Um, excellent. So, um, and I want, shall we just... Yes, please. Who in the room would say that they've had an experience of an angel? Hey, that's more than one in ten, isn't yes. it? Excellent. Yeah, yeah. And, so, or who believes in guardian angels? Yeah. Hey, I'm talking to the right group, aren't I? <laughs> I think we should have a sing-song now. No. <laughs> so we've got a few moments now left for questions. So remember that when you ask a question, I'm going to repeat it so it can be heard on the tape. Um, who would like to go first? Oh, there we go. Lady down. So the question is, is there any way that any human being, any of us, could act as an angel to someone else? Um, well, there are, there, I mean, in, our, in our culture, there are lots of ways where, where, where people are called guardian angels for all sorts of things that they do. I mean, not all of those roles, I think, would, would, would qualify under, um, un, under a, a kind of uh, any understanding of, of uh, angels in religious culture. Um, if, if, if angels are either the message or the messenger, and they exist in all faiths. I think we ought to think what the message of all faiths are. The message they so much that we have in common across faiths, and the, the, the simplest message that we all have in common is what's sometimes called the golden rule: uh, never do unto others the, that that you wouldn't want done unto you. It's in all of them. It's in Confucianism. It's in Hindu. It's in Hinduism. And if we want to act like angels, if we could just act on that. Show, I think it's pretty hard to show unconditional love to everybody. Uh, which, it, would be, it would be a bit of an effort. But I think if we, would, if we never do to anybody else what we wouldn't want them to do to us, which is why I stopped myself when I said hate before, we mustn't, let's never ever use the word hate again. <coughs> Let, let's let's realise there are reasons why people do things against us. And I'm not saying that will make us sprout, um, sprout wings, but it certainly will... will, will will be the message of the angels um, and when we reflect on them at this time of advent i think that's probably the most important message that religion has always had for our world but particularly has for our world at the moment so can let me just ask the question oh, yes, so the research yes. that you referred to <laughs> whose research was it um it's it, it's in the book i can't remember which it's one of the it's one of the big social polling organizations the references are all in there um I think it might be YouGov, but I, but I might be I might have I might have read too many YouGov polls recently <laughs> in the papers with horror. I have a feeling it's Comres. Comres, it might be. It's it, it's definitely. I mean, I could look it up, but I'd have to put my glasses on. Um, I think it's Comres. When I'm outside, come and ask me, and I'll look. I'll find it straight away. It's it's endless references to it in there. So can our um, can our loved ones come back um, after they've died, and would that count as an angelic experience? 
well, I've, I've described them doing it, so yes, I think they can. Um, uh, can they come back as a really, really important thing, certainly in Christian theology, uh, uh, around angels? This is this popular theological kind of tension in some ways. Um, uh, uh, Christianity officially says that um, angels have never been human. Angels, have, that's why they're second, that's where they're done with light and humans come later. They have never, ever been human. So human beings cannot be angels. And one of the things that you get as Christianity develops in terms of, sorry, that intercess, intercessor role is you get the rise of the cult of saints. So saints are human beings who are perfect and are in heaven and we, 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 we go to them for kind of support. Angels offer a different sort of support, but they're not like us, they're different from us. They're always different from us. And the tension it rises, it brings in particular, you see it hugely in the Victorian age, but you see it now as well, it's particularly around children dying. When children die, um, that idea that, um, that they have gone to be with the angels um, is perfectly theologically sound. But often parents, uh, in, in, I've talked to vicars who've had this issue, they want to talk about their child becoming an angel and being, being one of the angels with them. Christianity doesn't, doesn't, that isn't the official teaching of Christianity. A child can never become an angel in that sense because angels, which is why you've got the ladder, which is why they're always above us. I mean, the ladder is so important in that transcendent thing as well. It links these two worlds. It's the link, Jacob's ladder. On the front of Bath Abbey, go to Bath Abbey, west front, you've got them all going up and down. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so the question is, um, well, you're going to ask which passage yeah, it is. Can you remember? Is it important? Do you not know that we should judge the angels in one of Paul's letters? Yes, yes, yes. So, so the question is um, that in Paul's letters, and um, Paul says, don't you know that we shall judge the angels? Would you like to comment? Um, I, th I mean, I think Paul had a very, very complicated relationship with, with, with angels and they come up and of course he uses the, the language that is used in that hierarchy about dominions and powers, which are some of those mid middle ranking angels in that sense. Um, I think he was very, very keen to, we will judge angels, to put angels in their place, to, 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 to distinguish between Christianity and Judaism in, in that sense. And I think his... Uh, of course, Judaism stops being so overly keen on angels around the 5th century AD because they keep getting defeated, but remains keen on them in the Kabbalah, um, the mystical, and in, as indeed all mystical traditions, Sufis, uh, Christian mystics, Hildegard of Bingen. But I think what St. Paul was getting at there was putting angels in, 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 in their place, in that, that broader sense of the narrative of how the, those ideas pass. I mean, I think in the particular context, there may be more complicated readings of it, but I think your overall idea is St. Paul was keen to do down angels angels uh, 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 in the same way that he did down women but there we go <laughs> so the question is that um, theological we'll give you I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it so you, you can think about it exactly it's Martin liking this can you see the wheels turning really slowly <laughs> so, so the teaching is that God is omnipotent yes. all-powerful um, therefore why does God need angels and that's a very big question obviously um, and the wheels didn't turn quickly enough in, in, in the, the period in between I mean I'm very tempted tritely to say we all need a bit of help sometimes um, certainly if you look to the, uh, the Zoroastrian model of Ahura Mazda he had his helpers um, if you look in is it, this is in the book if you look at St. Benedict's rule um, uh, which is the basis for all monasticism what St. Benedict tells um, his, his monks is that when they are examining their conscience, examining their activities alone in their cell, reading the scriptures or whatever, that angels will always, uh, angels will always be watching over them and will know their thoughts. So in a sense, it's, 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 a, it's a heightened level of security, you might, you might describe it as. And of course in Islam, 
which get, you know, gets a terrible press all the time. And there's so many wonderful, wonderful things in the Quran, and it's so distorted the way we talk about it. But what Islam does, which I think is very, very wise, is it talks not only about guardian angels, it's really keen on guardian angels, but it gives us two angels, one behind and one in front. And the one in front is called the recording angel. And the recording angel records what you do during your life. Um, but it records them not in the way that an Ofsted inspector might record them uh, to close your school down afterwards, uh, but records them in a sense that there is a record of our life. It doesn't stop you getting into Jannah, into heaven in, in Islam. But, but that idea that as well as the unconditional, I like it, I think the as well, unconditional love is a bit risky really, isn't it? Because if you've got unconditional love, you think, well, I can do that, it's fine, because you know, the angel will always love me. Um, uh, Islam places a, a slight sanction on that in the recording angels, and the idea is that they do report back to Allah or they do have some link back to Allah so in a sense I, when I said before about angels being very finely tuned to our needs I think that that is part of it that in perhaps they're there more for us than for God perhaps they're there more to help us yeah, sorry not, not a great answer <laughs> Um, so the question is that in Hebrew there isn't a direct translation of angel, um, it means messenger. Um, there appear to be two types in the Old Testament. One of them is a spiritual messenger, the other one is in human form. Um, discuss. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's mainly to do with the chronology and you get those figures earlier on. So we, I, I mentioned about poor old Sarah um, beforehand um, being 89 and wanting to have a child. Um, uh, so what you get there, and it's perhaps one of the, the, the most familiar scenes in, in, in the book of Genesis, at the Oak of Mamre. So they're sitting in the midday sun, Abraham's there, and these three figures come across. They are nowhere in the text described as angels. They're not described as angels in the text. They're described both as men, the three men coming, um, but they're not, and, and, and then they speak with the voice of God. So there's always that kind of confusion uh, between, so that's why the Daniel books are much more specific when they start giving them names and genders. So you have these shadowy figures there who are sort of, they're messengers, but you're right, they're, they're not spiritual messengers. And it is the tradition of Judaism that they have become taken as angels. The word angel isn't used in, in, in the text there. So there, there, it, it has been conflated by Christian tradition, but, um, in a sense, it's, it's the kind of message, the message is from God and the vessel can be human or spiritual. But in some of them, the message is, I mean, sometimes it says the angel of the Lord. So the, the, the walls of Jericho is the angel of the Lord. But at other, there are other stages as well. I mean, the one that I find really complicated and difficult to understand is when um, uh, Jacob is wrestling with the angel at the ford at the Jabba. Because... Um, uh, uh, I'm trying to, one of them nearly killed the other. It's very, very kind of brutal. And you think, well, would God want to kill Jacob at that stage? Uh, or would the, or if it is God, or if it is an angel. And then, of course, at the end, you see the face of God. So the narratives allied very easily between human, angel, God, human, angel, God. They go backwards and forwards. So it is very complicated. And it's only later it becomes much clearer in the later books. And, of course, in the Old Testament as well, you have this, the, the seraphim and the cherubim, which are very clearly ancient. You have a cherubim right at the beginning of the Garden of Eden, another time of Christ. Um, so I think that that's the explanation for the two different things I think in the Hebrew and the missing word the missing missing word the Hebrew word for angels in those particular instances I always think my favorite bit about that bit at the Oak at Mamre is where so Abraham's in the front and poor old Sarah's out back as is always the way and um, when the angel says you know don't worry you two the angel, God's going to give you a child she laughs and, and then gets told off gets told off and you think well bloody hell she's 89 I mean <laughs> 
I mean, I'm surprised she's saying actually no thanks. <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, all that getting up in the night. I can't be doing all that at that stage. And she's, I, I, I kind of like her at that moment. I think, yeah, she's, I'd like her if I met her. Um, I've heard the clock striking, so sadly that's our time up. Um, I can feel that there could be, we could go on for a very much longer um, than we have already. But please, will you um, join with me in thanking Peter for a wonderful lecture? Thank you. Thank you.